This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. When the U.S. Supreme Court recently overturned Roe v. Wade, a decision that protected a woman's right to choose to have an abortion, it sparked protests and celebrations on both sides of the political divide. It also revealed the possibility for the same court to take another look at cases that affect tribal sovereignty, land, and people. In this hour, we'll discuss how U.S. Supreme Court decisions affect Native America. Join us after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The leader of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma says the U.S. Supreme Court has failed its duty to honor the nation's promises, defied Congress's statutes, and has disregarded tribal sovereignty. Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. made the statement following the high court's ruling Wednesday, siding with Oklahoma, ruling the state can prosecute non-Native Americans when the victim is Native American for crimes on tribal land. The 5-4 to four decision undercuts the court's own 2020 landmark McGirt ruling, which reaffirmed reservation boundaries and held the state did not have jurisdiction. Hoskin expressed disappointment in Wednesday's ruling but said it does not diminish the tribe's commitment to public safety and that tribal and federal jurisdiction remain unchanged. Hoskin also affirmed unchanged reservation and tribal sovereignty. U.S. Veterans Affairs Secretary Dennis McDonough has officially recognized the Navajo Nation Veterans Administration as a tribal veteran service organization. It meets the standards to be accredited under a VA tribal program, which helps veterans with benefits and claims. During a visit to Gallup, New Mexico on Tuesday, McDonough recognized the tribe. His remarks were streamed live by the Navajo Nation President's Office. They are the first tribe to take up this new authority. And thrilled that we can announce that today and as importantly put it into action to ensure that we are living up to our obligations. Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez called it a milestone achievement and a big step forward for Navajo veterans. Five Navajo Veterans Office staff members are accredited to process claims. The accreditation allows employees to represent claims on behalf of veterans. Before, Navajo veterans would have to travel to VA centers off the reservation. More than 80 claims have been filed since May. According to the tribe, there are about 10,000 Navajo veterans. Navajo leaders say there's a need for a veterans outreach center and hospital on the reservation to provide services and health care. Gallup, a reservation border town, has one of the closest community based outpatient clinics. It was one of four clinics in the state facing closure. The VA and members of New Mexico's congressional delegation announced this week all four clinics would remain open. The California State Senate Public Safety Committee approved the Feather Alert Bill Tuesday evening. The bill was introduced by Native American Assembly member James Ramos. It would create a state-endangered missing advisory system for Native Americans. Creating an alert system was a recommendation from tribal leaders who joined Ramos and advocates before the committee hearing Tuesday at the state capitol in Sacramento. Ramos talked about his bill as a tool to address missing and murdered Indigenous people. This bill brings further attention and effort to end violence on tribal lands and across the state of California. The rates of murdered and missing people in Native American communities is a shameful, it's a shameful state and national tragedy that does not receive the scrutiny and attention it deserves. 
We are excited but th about this alert system, but even more excited about the growing momentum, the momentum to tackle this issue, not only from Indian country, but also by non-native people like our collaborators here with us today, the California Highway Patrol and other law enforcement agencies, as well as the state legislature. Ramos says California has the greatest population of Native Americans in the nation and is among states with high rates of reported cases of missing and murdered indigenous people. He says the alert system would help get the word out sooner when an individual is missing or endangered by asking the public for tips and leads as quickly as possible. The bill is supported by a number of tribes, urban Indian clinics, and Native business councils. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by StrongHearts Native Helpline, providing no-charge confidential support and resources to Native Americans affected by domestic and sexual violence 24-7 at 1-844-7-NATIVE or strongheartshelpline.org. Support by the Facundo Valdez School of Social Work at Highlands University, whose culturally relevant clinical online MSW degree is available without leaving your community. Application can be made in three steps at online.nmhu.edu. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We knew it was coming, but the U.S. Supreme Court made it official last week when they overturned a previous court's 1973 decision on Roe v. Wade that protected a woman's right to choose to have an abortion. Now it's a state decision, and nearly a dozen have already banned or heavily restricted abortion. This is indeed a polarizing issue, and it's one that no doubt will make its way into political elections going forward. It also has legal experts thinking about the possibility of a more conservative Supreme Court moving beyond Roe v. Wade and revisiting cases that affect access to birth control, same-sex marriage, or even tribal sovereignty. We're talking about the power of Supreme Court decisions in Indian country today. You can join our discussion. Does the overturning of Roe v. Wade cause you concern or excitement? Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. We're looking forward to your call. On our show today, we have three guests with legal expertise on a wide range of issues impacting Native Americans both as individuals and collectively as tribes and sovereign nations. First up is Matthew Fletcher. He's a law professor at the University of Michigan Law School in Ann Arbor and author of the Turtle Talk blog. He's a member of the Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians. Matthew, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Sean. It's good to hear from you again. You as well. Well, Matthew, they did it. People have been saying it could happen for years, but the Supreme Court's conservative makeup finally made it possible to overturn Roe versus Wade. I got to ask you, were you surprised? Not in the least. Um, this is what the, the justices that voted the way they did. That's why they were put on the court. I'm sure there were. The only reason they're on the court is because they guaranteed in private to the right people that they would do exactly what they did with Roe v. Wade. 
Matthew, help us out here. I've read a bunch of articles and opinions arguing both sides of Roe versus Wade. And some will say abortion isn't mentioned in the Constitution. And others say, no, but it's implied. And then some say, just let the states decide for themselves. What's the big deal? And others say, nope, states' rights. It's just code for racism. Honestly, I can't make heads or tails of the legal arguments. Matthew, can you please provide an objective, concise, not overly technical legal explanation for how a 50-year-old president, precedent, excuse me, like Roe versus Wade gets thrown out? Well, it kind of goes like this. Um, that's true. In the Constitution, there is no uh, um, expressly provided, quote, right to abortion. There's a lot of other rights that are not included in the in the Constitution. So... Um, what the court has done and what Congress has done as well is to say, well, there, there's a right to liberty, there's a right to due process, there's a right to life, there's a right to property. And so they extrapolate from the language in the text of the Constitution, which is very vague, um, other rights and uh, protections. So some things are protected in the Constitution and nobody really argues with, about it, such as federal, state, and tribal sovereign immunity. There's almost no mention whatsoever of uh, state sovereign immunity in the Constitution. There's no mention of tribal or federal sovereign immunity in the Constitution, but the Supreme Court, almost every single case, votes to uphold that, saying it's contained in the, the idea of the Constitution rather than the actual text. But when you have a court where majority rules and all you need is five votes to do something, when you don't have explicit language in the Constitution, it's really up to the five, to whether they see extrapolated from the text of the Constitution, a given right. Now, the right in this case probably best comes from the right to liberty um, or possibly the right to, uh, you know, I guess you could say the right to privacy, which again is not something that is contained in the text of the Constitution. And what, the, what, a, what a normal court would do, like a Supreme Court for pretty much every other country in the world would do, is say, well, what does this text of this Constitution mean to people who are alive today? This court does the exact opposite. They only look, or at least the majority of them do, only look to the text as it was understood by the people who wrote it down and voted on it, um, a good chunk of whom are um, former slave owners, Indian fighters, uh, all of whom at that time were white men. And uh, that's the, those are the people they look to. And so that's how we get from uh, an opinion from the 1970s where the court was much more open to the way uh, modern-day people look at the Constitution and expect what their rights would be, as opposed to um, way back in the day. Now we have a court in 2020 that has put on uh, those, those justices are put on, the, put on the court explicitly to look at the way um, slave owners, effectively people who wrote the Constitution and their enablers, um, thought about what that meant. So that's a really helpful overview. And now let's click ahead. Here we have all of these states in disarray. They're scrambling to either enforce trigger laws and bans, protect access. Some are even stuck in like this legal limbo, trying to figure out and interpret current laws. Matthew, this is a mess. How long is it going to take to figure it all out? It's going to take a long time. Um, I think that every every state can pass a law at any time to, to modify abortion rights, uh, to, to eliminate or restrict abortion rights. Um, there, are, there are, you know, when they pass a law, they can say, well, you know, nothing after six weeks, you know, no abortion after six weeks or something. I mean, even that, you would think six weeks is an obvious thing. It could be Tuesday on March 4th, right? But nobody really knows if that's exactly right. Um, so if you are a criminal prosecutor and you're trying to enforce a law and criminalize somebody who provided abortion services to somebody, 
uh, in the six within the six week period then or maybe just outside of that well the defense can be well that's not really within the six weeks because nobody really knows in a lot of context when conception occurred uh, as a matter of medicine uh, let alone as a matter of uh, to, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt before a jury secondarily a lot of services could be considered abortion services and a lot of services that some people might think of as abortion services really aren't abortion services so there are a lot of contexts where we don't even know if the the kind of medical practice that is being you know the, the kind of practice the gynecological practice is being done is actually considered would be considered abortion under the state law as it is written so not only just within the 50 states and DC and all the territories there is a lot of am differences between what the states can do. Even within the states, the legislature can modify it as it sees fit. The courts will have to really delve, they're going to have to learn how to do, really how to perform abortions in order to actually figure out whether or not a criminal prosecutor, a prosecution can proceed. It's, it's, it's just unbelievably, relentlessly ridiculous is what it is. And what about tribes? Where do they stand in relation to this current patchwork of abortion laws? Are, are we facing the same uncertainties now as every other American? Well, you know, uh, some people have said, and I think this is probably accurate, that um, Indian country has already been in the world without uh, the right to abortion for quite a while now. Um, there was a, a federal statute a long time ago, I think from the 80s, called the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits the expenditure of federal money to provide abortion services. Um, a lot of Indian countries stayed away from that. Um, there are still uh, potentially tribes that could, using their own uh, resources outside of the, you know, the sort of the federal pot, could begin to um, provide abortion services. They may, may already be providing some form of services that would be considered abortion-type services. Um, and, you know, I, I think you're starting to see a lot of the rhetoric from both sides of from within Indian country as well on 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 what Indian country could do or will do after after um the Hobbs decision you know there's there's some in fact uh, your other one of your other um speakers today Ann Tweedy has written about that I'm sure you can uh she'll be happy to talk about that but there are other tribes I know here in tribes in Michigan at least one of them is thinking about uh, a, a path forward to um, expanding abortion services or creating abortion services in Indian country. So it's really very much a tribe by tribe thing and nobody has any idea um, you know, how it's, how it's gonna play out at this time. Well, let's go back and, and talk more about this current makeup of the Supreme Court, highly conservative, of course, and it begs the question, what's the next shoe to drop? What other precedents could the court also overturn now? Same-sex marriage, access to contraceptives, Indian Child Welfare Act, is it all at risk? Well, you know, when, whenever you, uh, the things that, uh, if you read Justice Thomas's concurring opinion in Dobbs, that's the, um, that's the plan of attack. So, yes, same-sex marriage, definitely on the chopping block. Even the right to contraceptive, contraceptives. If, if a state passes a law saying you can no longer, people can no longer um, use contraception, um, and I think states will some states will definitely pass those laws, um, this is a court that would say, well, there's no right for an individual uh, and their and their intimate partner to use contraception, which is just befuddles me in, in, a, in a modern day society like this. Um, I would also say that this court has a few other things on the chopping block that are critically important to Indian country, potentially, one of which is affirmative action in higher education. There's a case involving Harvard University and the University of North Carolina 
um, that will be argued in the fall in the Supreme Court. Uh, they, they're going to get rid of affirmative action. I mean, I don't even know why they're briefing the case. It's already pretty much a done deal. And um, whatever that means going forward is also going to be deeply complex. Um, and you mentioned the Indian Child Welfare Act, of course. That's a case uh, that will also be argued in the fall pending uh, in the Supreme Court. And, um, you know, it's it, uh, poor tenses are not probably as, as extreme or obvious or predictable as they are in other cases like affirmative action, but um, Indian Child Welfare Act is definitely um, is definitely in the sights and uh, definitely at risk and vulnerable. Well, also big breaking news today, the Supreme Court today ruled 5-4 that Oklahoma can prosecute non-Native Americans in Indian country, which, uh, you know, goes back to, to the McGirt case earlier in 2020. Uh, we got to go to break here in about oh, another 30 seconds or so. So I'm going to go ahead and just wait and, and let you respond to that after we, we come back from break. But just so much going on right now with regard to the Supreme Court and some of these recent decisions, some of these uh, precedents being overturned. Uh, lots to talk about today, and we've got the guests to, to make this discussion happen. If you've got a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. If you've got something to say about Roe versus Wade being overturned, we really want to hear from you. Our guests, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Our phone lines are open. Producers are standing by waiting for your calls. So please, what are you waiting for? Fire up that phone. Give us a call. We'll be back right after this break. This is a great time to see Native stories and talent on screen. On the next Native America Calling, we'll bring you previews and some reviews of Native-focused shows and films like Rutherford Falls and Wildhood that are available to stream right now. Join us and give us your reviews, too. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one-of-a-kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes, healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. You're tuned in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about how decisions of the Supreme Court affect tribes. How do you feel about a more conservative court ruling on cases now and in the future? Join by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. We're speaking now with Matthew Fletcher, law professor at the University of Michigan. Matthew, today, Supreme Court says Oklahoma can prosecute non-tribal cases in Indian country. What does it mean? Well, that's a good question. I don't really know. Um, every state has the potential of beginning to prosecute non-Indians for committing crimes against Indians in Indian country, which is something that outside of Public Law 280 states, tri uh, states do not do. So um, I, I'm not entirely clear that a lot of states are really um, 
got, you know, interested in doing that work. It's incredibly expensive. You've got to pay the work for, pay the money to investigate and prosecute, and then definitely put people in jail is probably one of the most expensive things governments can do. So I don't know that as a practical matter it's going to be a huge impact right away. Um, but as a matter of law, it's, uh, it just goes to show the Supreme Court in Indian law is like a, it's like a teeter-totter, a seesaw. You know, mm-hmm. whenever in the McGurk case you see Justice Gorsuch say, well, here's you know, the structure of the Constitution. It's really up to Congress. We're going to follow these default interpretive rules like the canons of construction um, and respect history and Congress's role. And then when, you, when Gorsuch isn't in the majority and, somebody, and the conservatives are in the majority, it's all about states' rights. It's all about, you know, the weak federal government and how, how we are, uh, uh, you know, we distrust our, our federal governments and certainly pay no attention or have no interest in what goes on in Indian country with the states. Um, it's just, it's hard to, to teach these cases back to back because they're completely internally inconsistent. Have we ever had a case uh, or a situation in this country where the Supreme Court is just, its credibility is being challenged and, and people are just so, so suspicious of, of their intentions? It's very possible that the answer to that is no. Um, at this time, I would say the court is probably at the nadir of its, um, I don't mean Ralph nadir, I mean the lowest N-E-D-I-R. Uh, <laughs> The lowest uh, of its reputation and legitimacy it has been since probably the 1830s when it decided Worcester versus Georgia and a few other cases that um, were, uh, you know, kind of went against much of public opinion. And uh, it's been a long time since the court has jumped out ahead of the rest of the country um, in a way that is just so dramatic. You know, it's... uh, you know, I, I love the, the, the women on strict scrutiny describe it as, um, you know, sort of this, uh, it's based on, a, a, they make a reference to somebody named Leroy Jenkins. It's based on a video game where all the guys, these people are getting ready to attack a dragon or something, and they're all planning and getting ready to go. And then this guy named Leroy Jenkins, one of the players, jumps out and screams, Leroy Jenkins, and just runs into the other room. I mean, that's the <laughs> Supreme Court right now. They're completely out of control. Let's add another legal mind to this discussion. Ann Tweedy is a professor at the University of South Dakota School of Law in Vermilion, and it's great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, Ann, I want to ask you, what are your thoughts on the current makeup of the Supreme Court and some of these recent decisions? Well, I agree with Matthew. It's just, um, I mean, we did have some hope, I guess, with... um, the Isleta del, del Sur case we had a, a little just a, a few weeks ago here, but um, the Castro Huerta case is a disaster. Um, the Dobbs case and Castro Huerta just like Dobbs breaks with precedent, um, remakes Indian law. I mean, there are things that aren't even under discussion that the court goes out of its way to kind of mess up the um, preemption test in Indian law, which um, wouldn't even apply generally in the, the criminal context. Uh, it's a civil jurisdiction test, but the court uses it and uses it wrongly. Um, so I, I feel like it's just chaos right now, um, as long as, as we have the five that we have in Castro Huerta and, the, um, and that we're also in the, the Dobbs majority deciding, deciding things. 
Now, shortly after Roe versus Wade was overturned, there were some discussions about Indian reservations being safe havens for abortion clinics. Is that possible? I would say that that it's going to be a stretch if if you did have a situation where a tribe um, was had tribal members as the abortion providers and tribal members as the patients. That would be the safest situation for um, the clinic in surviving. Um, state, you know, attempts at state jurisdiction um, and avoiding those. But if you have um, non-Indians or non-members, even non-tribal members in the civil context in an, either of those roles, um, then there's a chance that even if the tribe can assert jurisdiction, which it seems like it could um, as long as it, it enters a consensual relationship with the provider and the patient, um, whether or not they're tribal members in the civil context, you could have tribal jurisdiction, but the state could have jurisdiction on top of that and so um, could be charging the medical provider with um, ethical violations if they're a non, non-member non in the in the civil context or um, the patient as well um, could be asserting jurisdiction over, over the patient if they're not a non-member. So there is... Um, a lot of uncertainty, and it wouldn't be a sure bet, but with the way the court was analyzing preemption and Castro Huerta doesn't, doesn't look very good for um, tribes and um, tribal um, entities surviving a preemption analysis um, if they are employing non, non-members or having non-member patients, unfortunately. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. I would say if, if a tribe could have a tribal member provider and tribal member patients, um, then there's a very good chance of avoiding state jurisdiction. But other than that, um, there's just so much uncertainty. Well, it sounds really, really risky as you describe it. And what else as Native people do we need to understand about this overturning of Roe versus Wade that we haven't talked about yet, that hasn't been written about? What do we need to know? Well, I think um, maybe the best best bet from a tribal perspective, and um, several scholars have written about this, to have, if there is a way to get Congress to step in and say that um, tribes have a right to um, provide abortions or um, tribal members have a right to abortion access, if there's some way to get at that through a federal statute, then um, that's that's the best that I would say for in terms of providing certainty to tribal members that they can access these services. And um, it does seem like after all of the, and one of the things we talk about in our uh, co-authored short article that, that I worked on is that um, there have been so many abuses of tribal members in the healthcare context and also, of course, in other contexts, but um, for sterilization. There's just a terrible history with regard to reproductive rights. And so um, that would be some some solace if, if Congress would pass a statute that protected reproductive rights for tribal members uh, on reservations. That would be that would be a um, huge uh, bonus for for tribes and a way to get at these rights. Okay, so you're saying essentially codify uh, those those rights uh, for tribes specifically, but that issue of 
of Congress or of legal of them codifying Roe versus Wade, and, and that's been a criticism for a long time. Why didn't they do that years ago? Why did they just rely on this Supreme Court ruling as opposed to actually codifying it by law? If uh, legislators had done that years ago, would this whole situation could it have been avoided that we're in now? I would think so, unless the court is going to go out on a limb and say, you know, that a, a fetus is a person that's entitled to constitutional rights. Um, it seems like a codification would um, solve the problem um, just generally beyond beyond the tribal context, if you could get a broader codification or even a, a um, abrogation of the Hyde Amendment that Matthew mentioned um, at least would allow tribes to offer abortions when they are um, engaged in their own federally funded health services. Um, so that could be could be another approach, but that would also, there are also funding issues there and, and other issues. So an affirmative codification would be the best bet, I would say. Okay. We talked about the, the ruling today uh, with regard to Oklahoma. What are some other recent Supreme Court decisions that affect tribal sovereignty that we really need to be paying attention to right now? Well, the, the Isleta del Sur opinion um, allowed the affirmed the tribe's right to have um, certain types of games um, on, on the reservation, and it was specific to that tribe because there was a, and one other tribe because there was a restoration act um, that had some specific language, and so the court was interpreting that. Um, but it was so, in one sense, it's a very specific statute, but it did provide a glimmer of hope that um, the court wasn't totally um, enamored with with states' rights when states were against tribes. Um, so that that case is an important case, I would say. And then there's also the Denesby case about CFR courts, um, and that that is, I, I would say, it's um, a little bit more difficult to parse. Um, it's kind of a strange, the um, double jeopardy um, issue um, was decided in a, a way that favored tribes, but the analysis. I felt like of the majority was a little bit strained. Um, so that that's more of a, an unusual case. And we had Gorsuch dissenting and some of the other justices that are usually on the tribal side dissenting in that case. Um, so that, that one's a, um, more of a strange animal, I would say, but the um, Isleta del Sur case provided some, some hope for, for tribal issues. Now, the Brackeen case that uh, that impacts the Indian Child Welfare Act and, and, and puts that at risk. Anything new to, to know about that issue? Um, I would just say that the there is such a strong states' rights thread in Castro Huerta that it is it is concerning. Um, at the same time. It was easily distinguishable because you do have that those explicit statements that there is an attempt to preempt state law in in enacting ICWA. So it's easily distinguishable, but um, Castro Huerta is troubling, um, and so it could um, it could vote negatively for Brackeen, but I'm hoping not because there is is that clear way to distinguish them.
Okay. Well, we've got another guest I want to talk to you now, Melody McCoy. She's a staff attorney for the Native American Rights Fund in Boulder, Colorado. She's an enrolled member of the Cherokee Nation. Melody, welcome to Native America Calling. Thank you. Osceo, everybody. Not the best Osceo. day, but, <laughs> but uh, we'll sure, go with it. Sure, sure. Well, tell us, what is NARF's response to the decision on Roe versus Wade? Yes, the Native American Rights Fund, NARF, and NCAI are just, even as we speak, um, doing a press release on this and, of course, critical of the Castro Huerta decision um, from the court today as a, you know, an, an unwarranted, unconsented to intrusion on tribal sovereignty. Uh, you know, again, obviously, you know, as Professor Fletcher noted, the McGirt decision was, was an enormous victory. Um, Indian law and, and of course particularly for the tribes in eastern Oklahoma that their you know boundaries remain intact and that the the, 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 the rules of law as we know them were adhered to by the majority of the court um, the decision today um, you know it it, it it wouldn't have come about but for the McGirt decision and, and I just want to you know remind folks that you know Oklahoma made about five dozen attempts since the McGirt decision to try to get the court to overturn that, and, and the court declined. So um, that's a good thing um, for those who, who, who like the McGirt decision. Um, but uh, of course, this one um, comes up in the context of whether, okay, well, if there's Indian country, uh, then uh, can states um, prosecute Indians, I mean, non-Indians who commit crimes against Indians? Um, and it appears to us, as we're digging into this, the, the National Congress of American Indians and, and NARC, um, that, you know, it's, 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 again, you know, the Supreme Court, the law of the land. So it's going to affect more states than just Oklahoma. Um, what we're trying to understand is, you know, is whether there are any um, exceptions to the rule. And I suppose it would be some kind of express treaty provision or uh, a federal statute. Um, at this time. So we're trying to schedule uh, NCAIs trying to host a, a webinar or a tribe leaders meeting uh, in one week, I think on, on July 7th, um, to discuss this and, and give tribe leaders a, a good update of what the lay of the land is now given the Castro Huerta decision, which was close, so close, but the majority sided with the states. Okay, well, we definitely will be following uh, this as it develops. And I want to go back to, to Roe versus Wade, and, and let's really think about our listeners today. And some states with near or total abortion bans have high Native American populations, right? I'm thinking South Dakota, Oklahoma. Uh, Native women in those states might be listening to our show right now. What do they really need to be paying attention to right now? Melody, are you there? Nope, I think we might have lost Sorry, Melody. Yeah. And I, no, I, I, I'm here. Um, well, you know, okay. again, I think, you know, I think everyone's um, in a bit of a, of a scramble now to understand, you know, what what the options are, um, it, it, you know, and I just wanted to kind of echo that, you know, obviously, you know, as as lawyers and as citizens, the law changes, you know, over time. Um, and and yet. What's happened with this is, you know, the elimination or reduction of individual rights on this scale is quite unprecedented. Um, and, and usually, you know, the court exercises some restraint and it comes out with a narrowly 
tailored decision. I think what we're seeing in this one is a big, it's, it's a big drop of a big boom. Um, and and it, it, adds, it, it adds to this issue of the court's credibility and, and the perception of the court. Um, so, you know, it, does the court do this without regard to certain things? But I, I think it's all part of, you know, again, any lawmaker, whether it's a legislator or a judge or, or anybody, you know, finds a way to reach a desired result. Um, you know, so you get things like, you know, Professor Fletcher was saying, you know, original intent matters. No, it doesn't in this instance. Or, you know, practical implications matter. Or expectations of people matter. No, they don't. You know, so, you know, what what really matters is who are these decision makers? The okay. Supreme Court, they're, they're clever folks. We're going to talk more about who these decision makers are when we come back from this next break. Number to call for a question or comment, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. My name is Asad. When I was 19, my mom was diagnosed with colorectal cancer because she smoked. My tip is, find things to be thankful for. I'm thankful she quit smoking. I'm thankful for the nurses who taught me how to check her IV and to manage her medication. And I'm thankful for every day we have together because nothing is guaranteed, especially for us. The people you love are worth quitting for. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're focusing on the U.S. Supreme Court today and looking at how likely this court could revisit some other important cases that could affect tribes. Still time to join our conversation? Call 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking right now with Melody McCoy, staff attorney at the Native American Rights Fund. And Melody, this Supreme Court current makeup lifetime appointments. Uh, once they're in, they are in. And I'm, I'm curious to know, what is NARF doing to address uh, what we could call even uh, an anti-tribal sovereignty agenda there on the Supreme Court? Well, thanks. I mean, that, that's right in line with, of course, there's two things in particular that, that NARF does. We have a, a, a now two decades old tribal Supreme Court project, which is a joint project of the Native American Rights Fund and the National Congress of American Indians. And, um, you know, the purpose of the project is to um, improve advocacy for tribal interests at the Supreme Court level. And um, it's staffed by attorneys, um, including myself, from the Native American Rights Fund and, and from the NCAI. Um, and, um, you know, at this point, as I'm taking over the lead as the, as the third lead on the project since it was started in 2001, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of support for the project among um, tribes, uh, their attorneys and, and, and advocates, um, uh, professors and other advocates in Indian country. But, you know, and as this term shows, okay, there were three decisions that the court heard on Indian law, you know, significant Indian law issues, and we, tribal interests prevailed in two out of the three. The one today is, is the one loss. All of these cases were very close. You know, they come to the court because these are unclear issues of law. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, the court is the court. Um, and, um, 
yeah, these are presidential uh, you know, appointments. Um, and the previous administration um, appointed three justices. Um, and um, we've now had you know, one appointment by this administration. So that, that person will be you know, joining the court. Um, that's the other thing, though, that the, that the uh, Tribal Supreme Court project does. We have a judicial uh, selection project, and that focuses on getting more natives um, into the federal judiciary, primarily um, at the, at the, at the um, uh, federal court levels, the district courts, the courts of appeals, and, of course, the Supreme Court. There's never been a native appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and, and this is because, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's known that um, this matters. You know, we need native judges um, or, or, or judges who, who really understand these Indian law issues um, and native rights, um, and, and they can help educate others. Uh, within the judiciary, so we're pleased, you know, that this administration has appointed two, uh, has has added to the numbers. There's only a handful of natives who have served or are serving in the federal judiciary, and the appointment of two to district courts, one in in Western Washington and one in Central California, uh, by this administration, are reflective of the work um, that we've done. But the, you know, the advocacy before the U.S. Supreme Court is 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 ever 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 challenging and um, uh, these days, um, you know, again, um, you know, at this point in time in the history of, of the United States as, as a country, you know, there's, there's so much um, history and more law, you know, as, 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 you know, law doesn't go away. Um, so there's, there's more and more to go by. Um, and it, of course, it used to be that it, it, there was a time, a short period of time, um, in certain decades, maybe this, this, the 60s, 70s, and, and into the 80s, when one could count on the court, the, the Supreme Court, to uh, uphold the rights and interests of tribes. Um, that, of course, began to change throughout the 80s and 90s, and by 2000, 2001, it had hit pretty much rock bottom, and that's why the Tribal Supreme Court project was started. And then, of course, we've run into the, well, you know, let's go to Congress and fix these terrible rulings of the Supreme Court. That's been difficult in in, in recent years because of um, of uh, shall we say the the lack of a functioning uh, Congress on many things. But on the other hand, things have gone through, like the the the, the violence against um, uh, Women's Act and and some other tribal court funding issues. Um, and so now, um, I think folks are saying, you know. As we as we assess this, that a lot of this means that, okay, maybe if the court can't help us in Congress, or if the court won't help us and Congress can't help us, let's go to states. And and I see other um, other advocacy groups also turning to state courts, state legislatures, um, mm-hmm. to to try to address these things. That's a little bit new for Indian country, um, but it's not without a precedent. And and fortunately, I think that tribes politically. And economically, albeit post-pandemic, are are in a better position um, to work with states. <laughs> Oklahoma may be an exception, um, but to work with states <laughs> on some okay. of these issues. Um, so we do okay. see a lot of state tribal cooperation, and 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 also international law. I want to throw that in, that that's another avenue, you know, that tribes are really pursuing. So yeah, we got our work cut out for us. Well, Melody. I'm glad you mentioned, uh, you know, pushing for more uh, Native Americans in, in judge positions and, 
You talked about the possibility at some point of having a Native American serve on the Supreme Court. And I remember earlier this year when uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson was confirmed and uh, we did a show and, and had folks talking about that, and, and she was described as a sovereignty warrior and how great it was that, that she would potentially really advocate on behalf of tribes. But, but, but I think what we really need is, is a homegrown sovereignty warrior, uh, not another minority to play that role, but an actual Native American person on the Supreme Court. And, and in all likelihood, is that a possibility in my lifetime, in your lifetime? And if so, who could potentially, who, who in Indian country right now could potentially be that, that person? Is, is that person out there now practicing law, do you think? I think it's a real possibility. I'm going I'm to go back to your original question. I think it is a real possibility if we keep working on it. Um, and, and I'm not going to, you know, name names, but I think it's, you know, it's, it's interesting to see the, the gains that have been made. Again, you know, we've made gains at the, at the federal district court levels, um, but some of these are coming from, from higher levels in state court systems. Um, you know, we continue to, um, tr you know, you have to get through to, to the White House to get, you know, uh, someone nominated to the federal judiciary. Uh, and you have to have your, your, your senators on board. Um, for that as well. So it's, you know, it's a lot. But I mean, just look at the crop that's out there. There are, you know, today more Native uh, professors. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll vote for, I mean, I'll vote for Professor Fletcher to be on the U.S. Supreme Court in, in, any day. <laughs> uh, um, and, uh, and, and there's, you know, there's, there's uh, Native Americans who've served as deans of law schools. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's, you know, again, reflective there's, you know, when, when I look at the, you know, I've been at the Native American rights fund for 36 years. And, and when I look at the crop that we have of folks coming in for our, uh, summer law clerk candidates, applicants, you know, they're, they're coming from, um, you know, law schools all over the country, including, um, shall we say, um, you know, law schools, Ivy league and, and others that are, uh, reflective of, 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 individuals who then typically become candidates for um, judicial um, nominations. Um, I think, though, again, you know, we need to, to, to keep at this and, and really um, do what we can. I, I'm amazed with the Tribal Supreme Court project. You know, there's now over 300 attorneys, tribe leaders, professors, and, and advocates, you know, who support the advocacy um, of tribal interests at the Supreme Court level, and I think that's really made a difference, um, and we need to continue that. Um, more work needs to be done to um, also then, you know, address this issue about, um, you know, natives serving um, as uh, in the federal judiciary and also in, in state judiciary, since, as I mentioned, you know, the playing field is shifting a little bit um, to protect to protect our rights, to protect our laws, to protect our sovereignty and everything that goes with it. Uh, the state and the international uh, playing fields are, are increasingly, uh, okay. you know, the ones things are going. Okay. Well, you mentioned Matthew Fletcher, and, and let's put him on the spot. Matthew, your name being thrown out there is possibly the first Native American Supreme Court justice. What do you think? Do you want the job if it becomes available? Well, first of all, I owe Melody a dollar. <laughs> and uh, no, secondly, I don't want the job. I like being able to um, sit off to the side. And there are people in uh, practice, there are people in law schools that are more than qualified to sit on the Supreme Court. 
but it takes uh, leadership from two different places that really hasn't shown it. One is uh, presidential administrations. Uh, there has never been a political appointee in the United States Department of Justice who is a native person. Um, there are lots of people in DOJ. There are a few people in DOJ who are native and have been historically, but uh, no one has ever worked in the kinds of jobs that uh, you know the current. You just look at the resumes of the current Supreme Court justices. They worked in the Office of Legal Counsel in the White House. They worked in the Office of Solicitor General. Neither of those positions has ever contained a native person in the history of the United States. Um, additionally, you know, Indian country could probably do a little bit better in, in supporting. Um, uh, tribal advocates. There has not been a Native person who has argued a Supreme Court case since 2001. Um, Melody is one of the so-called first 13, the most recent 13 uh, advocates for this, of the Supreme Court, and that only goes back to the late 60s until 2001. And so it's been more than two decades now since, since uh, somebody's argued a case in the Supreme Court as Native. And those are the kinds of things that you need in order to build up your practice resume um, in order, and also in, in potentially make yourself viable um, on the political end that Melody was talking about. How do you get in line for a high-level position like this? Mm -hmm. Well, the other thing I, I want to ask you, Matthew, is this whole, I think what a lot of this really speaks to is these larger issues that, that strike at the very core of who we are as Native American people and the trends that we are seeing in this country right now with regard to the Supreme Court and, and other issues. And, and I'm thinking also of like early in the Trump administration when there was a proposal to privatize tribal lands. And with some of these conservative lobbies that are continuing to gain traction, are we facing a real risk that we could be moving in a direction that removes the legal underpinnings of tribal sovereignty in a way that could possibly make Native America virtually unrecognizable to what we know today? Could that happen? It absolutely could. Um, you know, I think that um, the cases we saw in this term in the Supreme Court, and really for the last 10 years or so, are, are not really... Um, of huge impact, of huge import. But there's a case, that case that we talked about on the Indian Child Welfare Act, Brackeen versus Holland, raises some constitutional issues that have, we thought were well settled, going, going back a long time. And the court today suggested in Castro Huerta, it didn't say this, but it strongly suggested that um, the Supreme Court's decision in Worcester versus Georgia is effectively a dead letter. And this is the kind of case that, like we, one of the cases you teach in the first year, first week of federal Indian law, the foundational principle about the limitations of state laws in Indian country and about the primacy of Congress and Indian tribes inside of Indian country. And the court today, really without any kind of legitimacy or analysis, just says, no, no, it's the opposite. States have just as much authority in Indian country as every other sovereign. And that's the kind of thing that a court without any real discipline um, and what it's doing uh, is, is it just because it has five votes can do anything it wants. And so, you know, the powers of Congress, whether um, Indian Affairs statutes uh, survive the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, which say that there's supposed to be equal protection of the laws, uh, whether the Tenth Amendment, um, you know, allows states incredibly broad power to, to basically, you know, decide to uh, ignore federal law when it comes to acts of Congress and Indian Affairs, all of these things are at play in Brackeen. And um, what the court has shown this term, in this last month in particular, is that if it has five votes, it can do anything it wants. And it has not shown any restraint whatsoever on that question. 
And um, so everything is up in the air right now. We really, um, we are going to see in this next year, probably around this time next year when the Brackeen decision comes out, what Indian country is going to look like going forward. It could be radically different. I want to ask Anne to comment as well. Anne, Anne what, do you, what do you think tribes need to be doing right now in this current political climate to protect their sovereignty? That's a great question. I mean, I, I go back to working with Congress, I think is it's the safest um, avenue right now, because as Matthew was saying, the court is just so unpredictable. Um, but beyond that, I would say um, having having explicit um, tribal tribal laws on areas that are important to the tribe um, is something that is helpful because um, one of the things we see, um, and this doesn't pertain to Brackeen in particular specifically, but one of the things we see have seen in previous courts is this fear of um, tribal law being hard to figure out. And so I think to protect sovereignty, if, if a tribe is willing to have um, explicit codes, um, that is, is helpful rather than the court seems to be afraid of tribal common law, uh, even though states are perfectly entitled to have common law and, and meaning that cases develop through, meaning that law develops through cases, um, but, but the court's afraid of that in the tribal context. So having more tribal codes, I think, is helpful. Um, and, and working with Congress, I would say, and um, not pushing. I hate to say this because um, it's, I feel like it, it's totally unfair to tribes, but um, making sure that any cases that they're pursuing through the appellate process are um, have good facts for tribal sovereignty is another thing that tribes, tribes already do, but um, I would think that they would want to think even more about that now um, with this current climate on the court that um, not pushing a case that has facts that um, would make a court want to rule against tribal sovereignty on an emotional on an emotional basis. Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today's show. Matthew, Ann, and Melody, thank you for joining us today and offering legal insights on the Supreme Court's impact on Native America. It's been a really, really wonderful discussion. Join us again tomorrow. We'll be talking about some Native films and television shows that are streaming right now. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Spruce. You've been listening to Native America Calling. Support by the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, presenting Ancestors Know Who We Are, a new online exhibition that features works by six contemporary black indigenous women artists. Joelle Joyner, Paige Pettibon, Moira Pernambuco, Monica Rickert-Bolter, Stormy Weber, and Rodslin Brown, addressing race, gender, multiracial identity, and intergenerational knowledge. More at AmericanIndian.si.edu. Cachet. First baby, don't know where to start? CMS programs cover prenatal services. Enroll today. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Elahqua.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.